welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by University College London and the NIHR in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. My name is Dr Fiona McLean and I am an Alzheimer's Research Fellow at the University of Dundee where I investigate how metabolic diseases like obesity and type 2 diabetes can lead to diminished brain function. And within that area of research I have a specific focus on the blood-brain barrier. Today I'm really pleased to be hosting this Dementia Researcher episode on Parkinson's disease. With me is Dr. Sarah Marzi from the Dementia Research Institute at Imperial College London and Dr. Dane Bacano-Kelly from the Dementia Research Institute at Cardiff University. Hello to you both. Hello. <laughs> so now I've done a quick introduction, let's find out a little bit more about each of our researchers. So why don't we start with Dane? Okay, so um, my name is Dane Bacano-Kelly. I'm a UKRI Future Leader Fellow and Group Leader at the Dementia Research Institute at Cardiff University and my research focuses on Parkinson's disease and the temporality of Parkinson's disease, really trying to understand the order in which phenotypes appear in an effort to really increase uh, the efficaciousness of therapeutics and the design of them so that we can really temporarily lock in um, disease modifying therapeutics. Fantastic and Sarah what about yourself? So I'm an Edmund and Lily Safra Research Fellow and UK DRI Emerging Leader at Imperial College uh, and my research focuses on gene regulation and epigenetics in neurodegenerative diseases, specifically Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the main hypothesis that really underlies all of our, my work is that I want to understand how non-coding genetic risk and environmental risk factors act on disease risk. So what does it do to the cells that are involved, to the cells that are vulnerable to the disease? And how do these cells change their regulatory programs in response to these um, external and internal insults? Uh, and how might that promote the disease? Amazing. Both sound absolutely fascinating research and we'll get into it a little bit more in depth in a minute but I think for our listeners um, it's a good place to start um, it's actually talking about what Parkinson's disease is and uh, and what are the classical symptoms and how does it sort of differentiate from other neurodegenerative diseases so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let um, Dean start with this one so what is Parkinson's? So Parkinson's disease is, is the fastest growing neurodegenerative disorder in the world um, I think it's predicted actually by 2030 to um, surpass and exceed um, Alzheimer's disease in its prevalence worldwide. Wow. I don't so, think that's something many people would actually be aware of. Is that yeah, this growing it's, increase? it's this growing increase. It's I mean, all neurodegenerative disorders are impactful. They're all um, oh, incredibly difficult for people that are witnessing it happen to loved ones and, and obviously going through it themselves. But when you hear of one on the rise, it's obviously um, something that helps us all to focus and redouble our efforts in trying to battle against it. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, what are kind of like the classical symptoms of Parkinson's? So Parkinson's disease is, is um, 
typically thought of as a, um, a motor disorder. Um, it has, you normally end up with lots of issues with goal-directed coordinated movement. So, you know, reaching for something to move to a drive to get yourself a cup of tea and move it back to yourself and, and, and drink it. These sort of goal-orientated movements are disrupted by this hallmark motor tremor that you get. So you get this resting tremor, which is the sort of shaking of, of sort of ambulatory um, systems. And so you're, you're kind of constantly, well, shaking in, 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 this, in this guise. And so um, you also, though, have... Maybe things that are less well-known, things like a troncal rigidity, um, stooped posture, um, a sort of masked facial expression. And so you have a lot of different things that seem to almost be counter, possibly, to, to, to the, the, the continual dyskinesia, the movement, that resting tremor. Um, you have lots of rigidity in various areas of the body. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's got a lot of... of, 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 of disruptive motor symptoms but there are also other symptoms things like uh, anosmia and loss of smell that happens quite early in parkinson's uh, constipation um, and, and, and that, that's, uh, these are things that maybe get talked about a lot less but are probably just as important and there are indeed cognitive dis uh, dysfunctions as well so. well that that's what i was sort of really interested about when i sort of looked into parkinson's a bit more is that typically we do think of it as a motor disease and that resting tremor um which a lot of people may be seen in people they know or, or even out in public this sort of um sort of continual tremor that people typically display in their hands i guess is where you probably most notice it um uh, but actually when i was looking into it i found a stat that said about quarters of patients actually go on and develop some form of dementia or cognitive um sort of disturbances um so is that something do you think in the field has been sort of enough awareness and is there enough research into the sort of more cognitive side of the symptoms of parkinson's uh, Sarah, what do you think yeah, so I think that is something that we're becoming increasingly aware of and that more and more research is targeted towards. Um, I have several colleagues who work on this now. But like you said, I think historically maybe it's been sort of ignored and Parkinson's has been thought of as just one simple disease, but then you get these yeah differing trajectories. I think I thought it was almost half of people who develop some sort of um, cognitive impairments at some point in time, and it might might take a while. So it's usually a later stage symptom than than the motor symptoms, um, and we don't really understand why some do and others don't. And it's it's really important to figure that out. Um, are there basic underlying differences in these diseases, or is it just a temporality? Um, is it a downstream effect of the original degeneration that's happening? So um, Parkinson's disease neuropathologically in the brain, uh, what we see is the loss of dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra. So this is one part, one very small part of the midbrain. Um, and although it's not been to definity answered whether none of the other surrounding dopaminergic neurons or related neuron types are affected, it seems to be quite specific to that area and to the dopaminergic neurons. Um, and then as, as they die, they also stop sending signals out to the neurons that they connect to in the more, um, in the areas in the front of your brain 
Um, and so it's thought that maybe because they don't receive signals anymore, that they these neurons then also start to degenerate. Um, but I don't think we understand it um, really well. Um, I mean, I'm sure Dane has some thoughts on on how that might work with the uh, yeah the nigrostriatal to frontal signaling. Yeah, yeah. No, I think because you're so a lot of your research is um, electrophysiology based, isn't it? Um, yeah. Dane and yeah. Um, your research kind of focuses on the early stages of Parkinson's and uh, you look at synaptic health. So um, I think that's quite a good, a good place to start is, can you tell us about um, synaptic health and how it's affected in Parkinson's disease? Yeah, sure. I, um, so, so following from what Sarah was saying, I'm I'm hugely biased, by the way, because I'm an, electro- <laughs> I'm okay. an electrophysiologist. So, We're all I, I'm, biased I mean, about I'm, our research. yeah, but but I'm definitely right. No, no, no I'm, <laughs> I'm obviously joking. No, no, no. Um, so, electrophysiology was, was, is the best. <laughs> That's of course, we're of course. We're looking at neurons, but neurons are the thing that is, you know susceptible in Parkinson's disease to a degree. There are other cell types that are destroyed in Parkinson's disease. You have you know, the gut's affected. And, and for instance, you got actually liver might be affected as well. Which is very interesting about the gut. Maybe we should start yeah. with synaptic health, but we'll come back to the gut because sure, that's, the gut that's... technically has some neurons in it, right? Oh, yeah. No, so definitely. Not... And it's, yeah, uh, well, let's yeah. not... we can come back <laughs> to that, we'll I suppose. But yeah, but if we are going to sidle back to the neurons in the brain, the neurons in the brain, the main role that they have is this, you know, is this neurotransmission, this like amazing ability for them to encode information in a temporal sense using chemical release and electric, uh, electrical transduction of information. Uh, and it's their specialized role. And so if we're looking at a neurodegenerative process, we probably should be looking at their normal function and, and how that's disrupted. And it's my belief that it's likely that this is allowing some level of susceptibility in Parkinson's um, because of this specialized role and because of the specific destruction of neurons. It must be something to do with with their specific role. And so we focus on looking at temporality of the disease, looking at the earliest stages, but we think that this will be in and around functions that specifically contribute to this synaptic function, this synaptic role. Um, So we're looking at multiple different features, calcium release that drives and helps um, um, neurotransmission release. We're looking at things like ATP production, which again modulates and and affects um, synaptic function uh, and many other functions in and around electrophysiological function uh, and dysfunction, I should say, because what we really want to know about is the dysfunction that precedes that neurodegeneration, because what we're interested in is maybe helping to modify and delay the onset of the cell death that will then occur after that dysfunction. And there's a lot of work that's gone on in the field um, looking into um, synaptic function now in Parkinson's disease. It's a lot of work that's happened fairly recently in the grand scheme of, of the literature that surrounds exciting. Parkinson's disease. Yeah, no, it's it fantastic. You're, you're right at the forefront of it. I have a question. Here's my bias, um, research bias coming in, because I'm obviously interested in metabolism and energy. And you mentioned ATP at synapses. Mm. So do you think that there is um, a role of sort of mitochondria at the synapses that's perhaps becoming defective? Um, do you think it could be actually something to do with sort of energy regulation at those synapses that then prevents them sort of doing their job and communicating with I do I do um mitochondria are, are very <coughs> excuse me are very um um it's well defined that mitochondria contribute to uh, the mechanisms of cell death in parkinson's disease um we know that from genetic models of parkinson's disease 
recessive models um, have shown quite a lot of impact on mitochondrial function. But that cell death that it seems to be contributing towards also might be, we might, if we look earlier, there might be dysfunction of the mitochondria and mitochondria are known to be functionally as active at um, at the synapse. Um, we actually just had a guest speaker up here who is, who's really looking at that as well, um, Mike Devine at the Crick Institute. And it's, it's fantastic work where he's looking at, you know, migration of mitochondria and movement to the synapses. And it's definitely involved. I've myself have found some data suggesting, you know, mitochondrial um, deficit in their functionality can then contribute to a lack of efficaciousness of the synapse so they don't work as well when they have a decline in calcium input into the mitochondria which will decrease their atp output and so makes sense all, right it does definitely because when you think so, about just <clears throat> as people and existing like we all need energy to do our jobs exactly. so it makes absolute sense that on a cellular level you know these cells need energies something that's so energy demanding as you know synaptic information transmission of electrical signal in in dopaminergic neurons which are these they're huge they have the, these long unmyelinated projections that extend for extended period of time that's and they fire at this pacemaking activity so because they're unmyelinated does that mean mm. that they sort of need more energy because they don't have that insulin likely it's, it's it's likely this and and also the fact that they 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 fire Mm. It's sort of almost like a heartbeat, a regular pacemaking. So they're yeah. continually active. It's not. Uh, so this requires a lot of energy to 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 drive them. So maybe a. And I, just to quickly go back to what Sarah was saying, um, the interconnection between all of the the neurons in the brain. We're talking about these dopaminergic neurons, specifically the ones in the substantia nigra pars compacta versus the reticulata. The ones in the substantia nigra pars compacta are projecting up into the striatum and the basal ganglia, which is a, just a mess of crazy, crazy <laughs> connections. It's like a really complicated area of the brain. But if you can imagine that they're all dependent and reliant upon each other, you've got, you know, gabaergic neurons reliant upon co co cortical neurons. So one disruption to one area might then manifest in a different area. So actually that's what some of the things that we're working on is it might not actually be starting in the dopaminergic neurons. It might well be starting elsewhere and dopaminergic neurons are just the ones that are most susceptible to said change and kind of die first. And so do you think that that area of the brain can be maybe thought of as like the London tube map? So it's kind of like, <laughs> like it's that. all, you know, there's loads of different paths and loads of different, you know, it looks really crazy and complicated, but actually there is an organization to it. But yeah. if you get a problem on one line, it can affect other lines, even if, you know, they're meant to be different things. Is that quite yeah. a good analogy? Or It is. I'm, I'm sure Sarah can talk about the disruptions on the, on the <laughs> tube lines and how everybody then rushes to the district line and can't get across. You know, it's just a nightmare. But uh, no, I think that's actually a really good analogy. It's an you, organic... You Development. I'm definitely going to use that. That's an, that's amazing. I'll bring up the tube map and then yeah, I can talk about all. It's not no, like it's, yeah. it's not like the Glasgow tube map, which is like a circle. Yeah, nice and simple. A <laughs> yeah. little bit more um, easy to understand. So, Sarah, um, yes. your research investigates Parkinson's disease from a different angle to Danes, and you yes. study something called epigenetics. So, can you just explain um, in a little bit more depth what epigenetics is and why is it relevant to Parkinson's disease? Right. Okay. So, epigenetics is basically all the mechanisms uh, that our body has, biochemical mechanisms, to regulate gene expression. Because every cell in our body has DNA, and it has exactly the same DNA, in fact. It's your uh, personal uh, DNA code that encodes all your information that you've inherited from both of your parents. 
but then how does every cell know what to do? Because our body is made up of hundreds of different types of highly specialized cells that do very different things. You might have a muscle cell that's involved in, in muscle activation and movement. You have skin cells that cover your whole body. Um, you have receptor cells in your eyes, and then you have lots of different cells in your brains, like the dopaminergic neurons that degenerate in Parkinson's. And they all, they look very different in terms of their shape and morphology. Um, they do very different things, like neurons would be sending electrical signals, for example, but not all the cells in our bodies do that. Um, so how do they know how to become what they are? That's epigenetics. So epigenetics is basically, you can think of it as an annotation that tells this really, really large uh, genome, your DNA, which parts of it to use. So like silence down all of these genes and then use this class of genes because you're going to need it to uh, for your calcium signaling, whatever receptors produce all of those proteins because you're going to need it as a neuron. Um, and so um, the one really uh, important part where that is seen most clearly is um, cell development and differentiation. And that is thought to be driven primarily through epigenetic mechanisms. But then it's not completely locked in and stable for the rest of your life. It's also a bit dynamic and it can respond to environmental factors. So for example, um, when we have uh, an immune activation, when, we are, when our body is infected by something, immune cells will react to that. So our body needs responsive mechanisms that can react to things that come in from the outside or also from the inside or regulate temporality throughout the day, throughout the life, throughout different cycles. And so therefore epigenetics, these mechanisms allow some sort of temporal dynamicness and flexibility. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I study these mechanisms pretty much to interpret how environmental risk and how genetic risk will act uh, on the disease. And we know that both environmental risk factors, but also variation in our genome can change the epigenome in specific places, in specific cell types. So really taking a deep dive into that and understanding what cells are affected by these given changes, um, where is it changing, what is it doing to these cells. Um, so I did want to come back once more to, because you were talking about the, the mitochondria, which uh, also from my angle, uh, onto the disease have become really prominent because both when we look at the genetic risk factors for Parkinson's, sporadic but also um, more um, familial Parkinson's disease, there is certainly a class of genetic variants and mutations that we know specifically affects the mitochondria. Um, and, equally, so yeah, and equally from the environmental side, one of the um, best known and strongest associations for my, uh, environmental risk factors are actually pesticides, so agricultural pesticides. Uh, and one really well-known one um, is called rotenone, and it's primarily a complex one inhibitor. So it inhibits the function of uh, complex one respiration in the mitochondria and therefore, uh, yeah, energy processing and energy delivery through the mitochondria. And it results in a substantially increased risk of Parkinson's in humans and also administering this to animals. Um, it's done in rats, for example, will give the rat a pretty much Parkinsonian symptom. So the rat will get the tremor, will get the rigidity, um, and I think eventually if you do it long enough, also some of you can test some of the cognitive symptoms as well. And you can see some of the cellular dysfunctions that you would see in the human brain as well in the rat. So it seems to represent Parkinson's as a syndrome in the animal really well. 
um, and it, it causes the disease, so to say, both in the human and in the model, making it uh, a really convincing and strong risk factor. And it acts primarily on, on the mitochondria. So there definitely is a, a really strong link there. That's so fascinating. So I actually have heard of rotenone and I use it in my own experiments because I do metabolic stuff and I use it to shut down the mitochondria. And I didn't know, I actually didn't know that it had previously been used as a pesticide. And now I know what I use it for in the lab. That's terrifying. Oh my goodness. (laughs) That should not be used as a pesticide. You say previously, so it has previously been used in in places like the, the European Union and the US where it's forbidden now, but it is actually still used in several other countries. Um, I think in in Brazil and in India, for example. And so it's really important uh, that, that, I mean, this association is well known. So I think there needs to be more policy lobbying to to ensure that these, uh, yeah, these kinds of toxic substances uh, kind of get regulated and and phased out uh, across different places it's not the only one right so there's there's quite a few pesticides pesticides that have been linked there's this work done by uh, Bieteritz and, and and other people over in the states and then they found that there's a number of different pesticides that could contribute to um um, um the, the decline and, and maybe parkinsonian features and then our differences in 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 our own genetics may increase the risk of that by not being able to break it down as well or, or, or breaking it down faster. And, and it's interesting because some of those have been presented to various government bodies and some of those have been removed from being used and then sometimes been reintroduced despite the information being present. So that's that's a worrying Not stat. Not good. Uh, it is yeah. actually interesting because I've just been thinking while you were talking and my grandfather had Parkinson's disease and he was a farmer. And now I'm sitting here thinking... I wonder what he was exposed to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, he was, yeah, he was in his 90s when he died, but yeah, he had Parkinson's for a while, and and he was a farmer for a long time, so yeah, it does really make you think, Um, and I'm sure there's been studies looking at um, farmers, especially we have such a big um, agricultural uh, in the UK. Evidence for this association actually comes from um, studies of farm workers who have extremely direct and constant and continuous exposure Mm. to, to these toxic substances. Wow. But they so, have also done some stuff where it's they've looked at the drift to like things like nearby schools and seen wow. the amount of, of um, pesticides that are in the walls. They can tell how much has been used nearby and the rate of Parkinson's in those towns, usually in the States, but in those towns. Because you know where the, you'd see those films where they fly the planes over and they crop dust, basically. Yes, and obviously, yes. that's going to drift on the wind. And so it's, it's really that's bad right. for any neighbouring places as well. And of course, so this is then going into our, uh, you know, into the water. It's going into our ecosystems. And it's probably doing a lot of damage that we don't even know about. Because if we only, so if we only know about the association with Parkinson's in humans, goodness knows what it's doing um to other species as well so yeah oh my goodness quite scary um make it so, even worse pesticides is just one class there are lots of other things that have been associated exactly. with parkinson's and and then then we wonder why it's on the rise well yes my next question was um aside so aside from pesticides um what other kind of environmental and genetic factors are there and what's like do you know what the split is like how important is genetics versus environment in terms this of is my kind of question <laughs> so, um, usually we would estimate something like that how genetic is a disease by looking at twins so you would look at twins that are genetically identical and then twins that are 
um, dizygotic, so that are like siblings, essentially, um, sharing 50% of their variants. And so then you compare how often does it co-occur in one versus the other, and then you could quantify how heritable it is. So Parkinson's, I would say, is really only moderately heritable. It's around 20 to 40% across different uh, studies that have estimated it. Um, whereas, for example, in, in contrast to Alzheimer's disease, which we think is around 70%, so that's quite a bit higher. Um, that's not to say uh, that the genetics isn't important. And I would say the genetics um, and the genetic studies in Parkinson's have been really thorough and really good and have shown us lots of potential pathways and, and mechanisms into the disease. Um, but that's just to bear in mind that environmental factors are going to play a more important role in this disease than in others, and that we also need to look at things like gene-environment interactions, like Dane was saying. So maybe an environmental exposure affecting different people differently depending on their genetic uh, makeup. Yes, absolutely. It's really interesting. And It is, isn't it? I think there's, for the longest, just to add on, the longest time um, people thought Parkinson's disease was just environmental because of that reason that Sarah just said, because it, it's not as a prominent as a feature as in other disorders, neurological disorders, um, um, until the advent of or the, the finding of, of alpha-synuclein mutations, um, which causes slightly earlier onset Parkinson's disease. But um, there's a number of them that have been found, yeah. So just for our, our listeners, could you explain about the links between alpha-synuclein? Alpha-synuclein is a, um, um, it's a very small protein, synaptic protein. It's, it's um, involved in membrane curvature and um, think that it's very important in, you know, neurotransmission and, and, and other functions like this. Um, in Parkinson's disease, it starts to aggregate and you start um, getting these intracellular inclusions known as, as levy bodies, which after Fritz levy, which basically um, are one of the way, the main ways that you can identify Parkinson's disease post-mortem, because you can only define definitively Parkinson's disease post-mortem. So you're looking for these kind of inclusions. And so when you actually have, um, you can have things like point mutations in alpha-synuclein, which causes or seems to increase this level of aggregation. Um, and synuclein triplications, which is one of the, the earliest ones to be discovered. So you've got triplication of the synuclein um, gene, and then you, you've basically got increased levels of it, which theoretically and factually empirically leads to an increase in, in the aggregation. Um, it does cause earlier onset, we'd just like to pause that point out. And then actually in those mutations, you probably get more fulminant pathology, pathology that's probably closer to MSA. And I think we were talking about it just before, but Parkinson's disease is, is a bit of a spectrum, actually, if we're actually looking at it objectively. And it's to say that, you know, it's just one thing. It's, it's a bit hard um, to sort of define it like that because the synuclein is definitely involved um, in some at some stage of the disorder. Um, but uh, when you have these mutations, it causes earlier onset and these differences in pathology. Whereas if you have something like LARC2, which is more... Um, uh, later onset, that's it's more similar to to the age of onset of sporadic Parkinson's disease. You basically have um, um, less of that pathology and, and more cognitive impacts. And, and so it's good to look at all of these. I'm again, I think all of the models are really useful. They all provide us with different information. I think they definitely you you have your autosomal dominant forms, which cause later onset, which are more similar to the sporadic forms. You have your recessive forms, which cause earlier onset. And then you have mutations that um, in the genes that cause risk factors like um, um, GBA, glucocerebrosidase, which is a enzyme found in lysosomes, which helps the processing of lipids and 
mutations in that increase a person's risk factor, but the penetrance isn't as high. And so those, that 20 to 40% is probably a bandwidth of how how much penetration there is before, for, uh, how much penetrance, sorry, there is for the genetic factors. And, That's yeah. So I guess maybe if there's a spectrum at some point, hopefully in the future, if you get a Parkinson's diagnosis, it'll mm. be maybe more tailored to like, right, you have this subtype. And then that can help towards sort of more targeted treatments and precision medicine, um, which would hopefully give people more successful treatments. Um, unless, so I don't know, should we discuss it? Let's all have a sit yeah, down and it. No, but unless, of course, if we if we find commonalities, like a common thread between all of them, that then, it, but then that is accelerated in some and lengthened in the other. So if we found one common theme and sort of trim out the fat, then perhaps we can use it. Um, uh, just that modifying that one common theme in all of them. I mean, that might be a longer shot, but there that, maybe yeah, there is I guess something that's similar. It's two approaches, right? You either yeah. try and find something that is affected in everything mm-hmm. and hope that it improves it all, or I guess, yeah, if that doesn't work, then you start to look more in depth at these sort of different subtypes. Yeah, um, it's just the rate it might spectrum. be affected. Yeah, so yeah, yeah it could be. That. I mean, that would be wonderful to think. To find the super superpower drug that cures them all, oh, but uh, realistic. I know like, that would be amazing. I'm, I'm a bit uh, pessimistic, maybe no, maybe not realistic, pragmatic, and I think maybe as we've seen in in other complicated diseases like cancers, maybe there are subtypes that do distinguish themselves through certain biological pathways and mechanisms that make them easier to act upon, and then at least we can target those. No, I, I do agree. Just pragmatic, like arguing devil's advocate. There's possibilities, I suppose, in both ways. I'm not married you know to the idea. You've got to look at it all, though, because if you don't look for it, then you'll never find it. Um, so I guess talking about risk factors, is there anything that we can do as individuals to lower our risk factor for Parkinson's disease? <laughs> this is tricky. You have to live in the right areas, probably. Don't live where the pesticides are. Um, uh, we didn't quite... Yes, we didn't quite touch upon what the other big classes of environmental risk yes. factors are. Let's actually, talk about that. so um, uh, other big classes would include heavy metals. So people who work in in mines uh, of different sorts, copper mines, uh, mining heavy metals, have uh, a substantially increased risk of developing the disease. Um, then we've seen pretty good evidence for industrial solvents like um halogenated chlorines basically like uh, tetrachloroethylene and and other variations uh, of those um that are quite strongly associated again with parkinsons and we've seen this especially in people who have dramatic exposure so who literally work on top of a vat with that industrial solvent decreasing i don't know metal components in in automobiles or whatever um, but we've also seen it in some some contaminations of sites. Again, in the US, um, there's this famous uh, military base that got a big spillage into the groundwater of tetrachloroethylene. And then after many, many years, because it takes a lot of time and, and these exposures build up, you see an increase in, in Parkinson's occurrence. Um, so those those are two big classes. And, it, and once they're in the environment, it's some of these are really hard to break down as well. Like the, the tetrachloroethylene TCE, unfortunately, uh, forms structures that are relatively stable for potentially decades. So it is a problem. But yeah, so we need to, I, I guess that's more at the policy level. 
uh, ensure that politics knows about these risk factors and acts upon it and minimizes the, the, the usage and thereby the exposures. Um, some other things are a bit more lifestyle factors. So uh, one really uh, puzzling one is that smoking is actually negatively associated with Parkinson's disease risk. Um, which is weird. Right, we're, no, we're not advising. That we're not. Disclaimer: We're not advising you take with up all sorts of other really terrible diseases like lung cancer and cardiovascular um, and, de- and dementia in general. Yeah. So I was going to say, is it not the reverse in something yeah. like Alzheimer's disease? That's but, right. Yeah. Um, but it's also not known in entirety whether um, that is a causal association, uh, because as a devil's ad- advocate, one could argue that. Um, maybe the general prevalence of dopaminergic neurons, so how many you have to begin with um, as a human, might be associated both with your propensity to smoke and Parkinson's. So saying that if you have a lot of dopaminergic neurons, because dopamine is actually involved in the reward circuitry in our brain, so if we do something that we like, our brain goes like, oh, we're happy about this, and that might be things like smoking or drinking alcohol, and therefore having more dopamine activity might predispose you to become addicted to things more easily. So um, that could also be an underlying cause. That has not been... Fascinating. Uh, how risk-averse you are and how sort of risk-taking you are, yeah, it could be affected sure. by dopamine. And, and what, about, what about stuff like exercise and diet? Sorry, back to my bias point of view from my research. <laughs> no, I think that's fair, actually. I think exercise has been shown to be very um, effective at maintaining your level in Parkinson's for instance and, and even perhaps staving off the deterioration so slowing kind of progression slowing the progression it's been shown that that can be enormously helpful and so uh, for the similar reasons you know stay uh, exercise and eating well is never a bad thing right so it's got to be something that we could utilize in our daily lives to improve upon this it's just that when we've seen um, during Parkinson's that you utilize an increased level of, of of exercise and coordination and control, things like dance, things like boxing. I think I think I was watching the same um, documentary that happened on the, the uh, on ITV the other day with Jeremy Paxman, and he was talking about how people are enjoying things like bowls and anything that you know can needs coordinated, controlled movement. But it's uh you know there's there's all sorts of information that seems to be tied with things like increased blood flow increased concentration um and and diet has been also linked obviously we've talked about the gut earlier and there's the idea that there's the idea that it's a sort of a a bottom-up um progression of the disorder you can see sort of a lewy body pathology and and the spread of of dysfunction and destruction up from the gut and then into the brain so so could you explain that a bit more because i find that fascinating so what what is there early changes seen in the gut? Is it linked to gut microbiota? Is it linked to sort of signaling from the gut? Like, why is this connection? So, so I've got to say that the the gut microbiota uh, for me is is not uh, my strength. However, I know that the um, that the that there is a lot of work going into looking into that. There is definitely early signs of pathology within the gut and um, you also have the enteric neurons going up from the gut that are affected um, in Parkinson's disease. It, it seemingly occurs incredibly early and obviously um, we were talking earlier as well about um, constipation being one of the um, yeah. main features which actually occurs 
pretty early. And I would actually argue that there is a lot of the non-motor features that are uh, affected pretty early in Parkinson's. It's just that the motor features are, are prominent. Uh, That's usually what people come to the clinic for. But you have all sorts of issues with neuropathic pain or um, anxiety, um, chronic anxiety or sleep behavior disorders. Getting mm -hmm. to sleep, remaining asleep and having a restful sleep is completely disrupted in Parkinson's. And sorry, not to digress too much, <laughs> moved from sort of one non-motor feature to, to, to the others, but, but it is, that does turn up very early sometimes, well, quite often earlier than the motor features and sort of progress with time so that they become more prominent later, but they are triggered earlier. So you can have people with um, REM sleep behavior disorder that convert at quite a high rate um, to Parkinson's disease. There's a lot of work done in Oxford by Michelle Hugh and, and Co that shows that these are almost the, for want of a better word, the sort of precursor to, to yeah. Parkinson's and so, so you can see a lot of, of prodromal yeah. yeah I suppose but uh, it, it's 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 there's a lot of non-motor features that seem to contribute but the the gut is is one of those um that you know whilst it does contain the neurons is probably not readily associated with the neuronal degeneration and so yeah. maybe it gets left out a bit but there is a lot of work going on in it and it probably ought not to be and I think that there is definite um it might not be directly linked to, to the things we're eating that's causing it because there might well be some underlying genetic um, differences that cause them to be more susceptible to change. But if you think about it, it's another energy, highly energy dependent area of the, the body. So, And we know that if you have issues in the gut, you can get a leaky gut and then things can leak out into other systems that can cause an inflammatory response in your body, can cause an inflammatory response in the brain. And that's never good if it becomes a chronic thing so I guess it's one of those things where if you have a trigger then it can just sort of cause a cascade of problems down the line I find it's really fascinating the links between the gut and the brain because I think historically we think of these as very separate things um but actually I think in the last decade we've really started to realize how influential the brain is on our gut and the gut is on our brain and um, which is I think it's a really exciting area of research. Um, and so just to kind of um, think more about where the future of Parkinson's research is going, uh, what do sort of future therapeutics look like? Um, I There was a recent story that I just thought was amazing, which was about a woman who says that she smelt her husband's Parkinson's disease um, before he was diagnosed. And the, she... She basically um, just thought he smelled different and musty and she thought it was just him. But then when he was diagnosed and she went along to a Parkinson's group, she realised that the whole room smelled like he did. And I would just love to know what you guys, you guys take is on that. And, and yeah, where are therapeutics heading in Parkinson's disease? I think, I think that story is awesome. It's, it's so amazing. fascinating. Padita Barron up in uh, Manchester is really heavily involved in trying to transfer that. Because, yes, yeah, she's a super smeller, I suppose. And she can smell the, and detect. And she can even get down to the level of, of maybe stage of Parkinson's oh as well. Goodness. Which is just, it's incredible. just incredible. Oh, yeah. She's she's amazing. And, and um, so they're trying to get towards a, a, a way of then sort of quantifying that and understanding what's being expressed in the sweat of these individuals because effectively if you could then just mop somebody's brow and then analyze it and be like your early stage we're now getting into the realm of you know biomarkers that can tell us about 
earlier and earlier stages of Parkinson's disease. And that's going to be really critical in treating, right? Because the earlier we can treat, the more chance we have of staving off the onset of, of um, the cell death. And it all full circle. It all comes back down to trying to stop the dysfunction in those at the synaptic level. So if we can get that to that stage, then we can be like, well, we can give you a drug to stop the breakdown or at least delay the breakdown of, of the neurons, which means that you'd end up with developing symptoms much later in life, like, you know, instead of 60, 70, you'd be doing it. I'm so glad that, because she must have thought she was like, what is going on here? I'm so glad that she kept talking about it because she's clearly kept saying, I can smell something, I can smell something. And eventually it's, it's, you know, people have listened to her and said, I wonder how many other people had done that before right. and kind of gone I'm not going to say anything because that's just rude or I don't know what <laughs> I'm, I'm talking do you know what I mean I, you all smell different that is, is a bit of a that's, you know yeah that, but, that's a really good point I don't know I just I think she's amazing Sarah what do you think about therapeutics and and Parkinson's and and where where are we headed <laughs> I feel like I don't have good answers for you because my approach to the disease is sort of very basic very fundamental foundational going back to what I think are the earliest causes of these diseases so starting from the environmental exposure starting your from strategy the- <laughs> would be prevention basically so um yeah well, how do yes, we prevent well, i think there is a good happen. argument for that like dane already said um the, the earlier you can get in there the better so um twofold ways one if you've had a lot of neurodegeneration i don't see how we can like recreate or rebuild the lost uh Uh, neurons the lost connections and everything I don't think that's realistic so we need to stop it as soon as possible there's maybe even an argument that it is a cascade so if you don't get in early enough it's basically unstoppable that might be an option too and in either of those cases we need to get in there as as early as possible um, so that the damage isn't even done so I think that that is absolutely right but the other reason why I go to the environmental and the genetic risk factors is because I really want things that are mechanistically causal to the disease, right? So we have lots of associations of different things with diseases. And um, Dane mentioned, for example, sleep disorder, REM sleep disorder, and different things that's been associated with various types of dementias and neurodegenerative diseases. But there, the, the causality is really not that clear. So is, is the sleep disturbance, is it increasing your risk for the disease? And there is some evidence for that, because if you don't sleep well, clearance of um, aggregates in your brain, things like the Lewy bodies that we talked about or or other aggregates and other diseases doesn't work as well. So it's certainly not good if you don't sleep well. Uh, But equally, people who have these diseases tend to not sleep so well. So the sleeping poorly might be a consequence of the disease and of ongoing neurodegeneration. Um, And it's just a vicious circle that is driving each other. So it's, it's hard to establish causalities for many of these factors. And that's why I sort of want to go back and I really want to understand what is causing it. Because if we can act on the pathways and the mechanisms that are the original cause and onset of the disease, then we have the best chance of preventing and stopping it. So Sarah, do you want to work on both? Do you want to work on both the sort of epigenetics and the genetics? Because you need to look at the genetics to see the initiation and what that's actually driving. Absolutely. And then the epigenetics and how that model. Yeah, because that's Absolutely. fascinating. 
your stuff so, is your um, I'm maybe unusual in that I, I don't see epigenetics as separate from genetics. And I know genetic variants can drive epigenetic mechanisms. And uh, not everyone would agree with me. Some people tend to think of epigenetics as something that is very malleable and environmentally driven. Uh, but I don't think that's right. I use some sort of more biological definition, like biochemical mechanisms that regulate gene expression basically. And so I really want to understand it, particularly in the context of the genetic risk and background. So yes, um, I, yeah, I'm really keen to combine these two things together and leverage the causal information that we have from the genome, because your genome is basically set at birth and it's not, it's not going to be changed by any influences, environments and anything. So there, therefore, we can leverage it to understand what is a cause and what is a consequence. We should work on the uh, IPSC um, um, RBD lines that we have because uh, not to lament uh, the, the sleep disorder, but when talking to people with Parkinson's, they actually say that, well, some of them, not all of them, um, talk about how the non-motive features are actually much more impactful on their daily life. I mean, anxiety, um, if you have a sort of a wave of chronic anxiety, that's going to be quite debilitating right and sleep I, I don't know about you guys if I don't get good enough sleep which I often don't um you know my anxiety goes up the synaptic connections don't work as well so cognitive processing and problem solving becomes harder these when you're talking about sort of a cyclic event um Sarah I I, I truly believe that it, that's what is exactly what happens so if you imagine every time you don't sleep properly your coordination goes so movement becomes harder your, your processing becomes harder your anxiety levels do go up and these are all symptoms that happen in Parkinson's disease and they seem to be sort of driven so maybe it's initiated by Parkinson's disease but I think the sleep may well make it worse and so it's one of the things that actually we really want to work on in the lab because we think it's probably turning up quite early and it's something that maybe if we could modify may delay the uh the uh perpetuation of the symptoms super interesting um, but also oh dear, is... i slept very poorly last night and these are not things <laughs> <laughs> no these are not great but i mean it, i suppose it's then how you let's let's not too doom and gloom i don't think you're causing yourself to have pd just by not sleeping properly but you've got the you weekend know. catch up it's true this is, oh, this is what i say about people with um their diets as well is that i think we sometimes focus too much on like a single day and what did i eat that day and it's the same with sleep, like, did I sleep well that day? It's better to look at it over a week because if you have one out of seven days of not eating well, if you've eaten well six of the other days, then that's really good. <laughs> and I think it's the same maybe with sleep as well. Okay, you might not have slept well for one day, but if you've slept well the other six days, like, because people get very people get very anxious about their lifestyles and that's not going to help it. Uh, you know, that's not going to help you have a good lifestyle if you're anxious about your lifestyle. So <laughs> Exactly. But it is Friday and I am going out. <laughs> and so how <laughs> <laughs> good my sleep is going to be tonight. <laughs> True. Just have a long lion tomorrow. That'll be fine, right? Right. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you both so much for coming and speaking about uh, Parkinson's disease today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think I'm so excited for your new collaboration that's going to happen. Yay, it's going to be yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that sounds fantastic. And you both do incredible work and it, it sounds like a really exciting field at the moment. Um, so thank you so much for coming to speak. No, thank you. Thank it's you for fun. having us. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Always a pleasure. <laughs>
I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. However, if you just can't get enough of this topic, then please visit the Dementia Researcher website, where there are several blogs and articles on Parkinson's disease. I would like to thank our incredible guests, Dr. Sarah Marzi and Dr. Dame Bacano Kelly. I'm Fiona McLean, and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Bye. Bye. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association. Bringing you research, news, career tips and support.